Welcome, Lindsay and Arthur to studio. It's great to have you here. To start, um, I know recently there was a Morningstar COP28 media debrief that laid out some, well, for me, some kind of, some stark, you may disagree, but some kind of stark uh, warnings about where we're at the minute. I think just to open, before we go on to, I think a good place to start would be both of your wish lists from the perspective of the work that you're doing um, in Morningstar with COP20 in, in mind. Um, Morningstar data recently showed that at least 87% of companies are on a pathway towards a global temperature rise of 2.1 degrees Celsius. And I suppose depending on whatever your point of view is, and I'm interested to hear your point of view, you know, is this is this red alert warning? Uh, and um, so I suppose with that in mind, Maybe Arthur, can we start with you? Your focus is on regulation and what governments should be doing. So looking at COP28, what's your wish list? What do you want to see? And then what are your expectations? And then from the stewardship point of view, if we could if we could answer the same. Yeah, so I, I look at things mainly from a regulatory point of view. So COP28 is this huge international thing that goes way beyond my, my work remit. But I think what investors need and our community, our clients and us, is consistency, right? You need like consistent messaging. You can't deviate from it. We're trying to, um, you know, sell like a, a cargo ship or I don't know what what's the appropriate size, but you can't just switch direction from uh, one cup to, to another. So consistency in general, policies that are rolled out um, in local jurisdiction as a result of those agreements, like the U-Green Deal, the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act are super important frameworks that give uh, a certainty to investors that they are with the trend and the trend is their friend and they need to have this support. They can't do it by themselves. So um, I think that would be the the number one wish. And then from a technical regulatory point of view, I would say at a high level, um, we're now in the phase of like implementing some of the standards for climate reporting, um, ISSB, etc. And it's really no time to have cold feet and cold feet, sorry, around um, you know, pulling the trigger and actually implementing and enforcing those disclosure rules. Um, and here there is, I, I can d- d- deep dive into, you know, yeah, sure. what's what's happening at a global scale, but um, uh, the the results are a bit mixed bag and we're a bit worried about certain jurisdictions deviating from the ISSB standards. Uh, or in particular, and in what well, what kind of a deviation? Yeah, so I mean, uh, we all know that uh, without scope free emission, you can't really uh, assess what's what's happening. Even though there's, you know, um, um, e- technical uh, implementation um, difficulties associated with, with scope free, we don't want to ignore that. But without it, you you're almost like in the dark, right? So, uh, seeing the um, you know the ECC mentioning several times that the um, you know scope free could be um, uh, out of the scope of the, the their own standard that that's uh, that's worrisome I would say not a surprise but uh, uh, not not helpful right if you want to uh, to um, assess uh, things holistically in the US companies are of course uh, uh, super important um, in, in in portfolios of investors so it's like um, it, it's an issue, and there's there's way to alleviate that. We you know we have our modeling system, and but uh, you want as much as possible to have uh, raw data coming from issuers, coming from them, being uh, eventually subject to uh, audits or limited uh, assurance at, at at the beginning. So, in in the EU, it's going uh, relatively well. We have uh, um, the so-called CSRD, Corporate Sustainability Reporting Directive, with uh, with a dedicated climate uh, standard that's uh, fairly uh, robust. There's been a last-minute attempt to derail this, 
but he was preserved. So, um, but it should. What way was it? Uh, in the European Parliament, it was a resolution to try to uh, to vote it down, and uh, it was it was uh, pushed back, and it, it made it through. So, um, but it shows that uh, it's not an easy thing, and when you come to the finish line, uh, sometimes policymakers uh, have second thoughts. So. Um, here in the UK, we already have the TCFD recommendation being uh, uh, applied by a large chunk of issuers. So there's already a standard out there, but uh, the timeline to endorse ISSB, which is which goes a bit beyond TCFD, uh, yeah, um, the first report will only be issued by 2026. So it's been the timeline is not ideal. It could have been it could have been endorsed uh, in a you know er, in a, at an earlier stage, uh, let's say. So, but. You know, so it's it's mixed bag. I would I would say on that front, and then the third point I'd like to make is not looking at the data, but looking at the rules that applies to our client investors. Um, I feel like sometimes the in the EU the fight against greenwashing has caused regulators to lose sight a bit of climate. Um, so they've developed a lot of data points that they've constructed, uh, and some of them uh, are not necessarily around around climate. Um, and this has led to sometimes confusion. Um, for instance, they've created this label, US Paris Align uh, benchmark, um, and that's been tracked by a lot of funds and uh, they, have, they have significant amount of uh, asset under management. Um, and those funds have been asked to be classified uh, as Article 8 and an Article 9 and an Article 8. Again, there's been lack of clarity and this fear of uh, being on the wrong side of regulation and litigation doesn't help. And it's, you know, it's a very concrete example. It's the own label created by regulators, and yet they ha they were not giving the highest qualification to the funds uh, applying for the photos label. So if you're Article 9, mm. you're supposed to have a sustainable investment objective. You're supposed to be like, uh, it's the highest classification, to, so to speak, and they were because of legal uncertainty, they had to opt for Article 8, which is a safe option, which which is to say, I, I'm, I'm just trying to fulfill ESG or I'm just seeking ESG characteristic there. Um, so... Why is this... This feels like, I suppose, does this feel like governmental backtracking, in a sense? Like, on one hand, you know, you've got incredible strides are being made with, you know, things like the IRA and, you know, equivalent you know, Green Deal pledges and regulations being pushed through, you know, soaring demand for EV cars. We're seeing enormous strides in one sense, but then there's this kind of hesitancy or one foot, one out, one, out, one foot in, one foot out, in a sense, in yeah. the policy. I suppose what's spurring that? Is there a kind of a competing, a competing like there's, there's so many emergencies happening at the, time, at the same time, there's some kind of sense of inertia. Are they scared of putting people off? What What is behind that? I think in the, the last examples I've mentioned, it's really that they, they were after perfect and perfect is the enemy of good. So they really wanted like rules that were tight to protect retail investors and avoid greenwashing at all costs. Mm -hmm. And uh, sometimes um, people seeking climate objectives that have been lost in this you know, new rule book that's been a bit inconsistent and hard to read. And... Um, Paralyzed and, by and, this sort of like wish for perfection. It, it, yeah, exactly. And 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 in the, in the first um, example, sort of the second point around data, I think it's just yeah, um, people uh, having cold feet just before pulling the trigger, and um, um, that's that's not, not not helpful. I would say. I mean, the data thing, the data gap's been identified for quite a while as a as a major hurdle for investors and. Um, 
um, we hope um, we we hope that uh, I hope that I'm wrong and that uh, the the jurisdiction that are concerning will end up uh, endorsing rules that are consistent with ISSB standard. So I suppose bearing in mind COP28 without being dramatic feels like a kind of a not a last ditch attempt, but a pretty crucial moment in to shift public opinion to sway governmental will. Um, bearing that in mind, you know, looking at what what you what you focus on, Lindsay, from the stewardship point of view, what is your without I suppose just following the same format? What is your wish list? But what what do you need to see happen from a stewardship point of view for the COP twenty eight to be deemed in any any way a success or be impactful? That's the big question, really. I guess um, the possibly too broad of a question, but let's just no, no. It's, it's quite all right. The uh, yeah, COP twenty eight is is absolutely a crucial moment, but it's the latest in a long series of crucial moments. COP twenty seven, COP twenty six have all been crucial, and I've uh, written and spoken on the journey that we've been on in the last couple of years. Where we go back to COP twenty six in Glasgow, there was this idea that finance was going to lead the transition, and there was all these. The GFANS was was born, the Nessier Asset Managers Initiative, the Insurance Initiative, Asset Owners. Lots of momentum around finance, lots of well-intentioned activity around that. And then I think in the two years since then, we're starting to see the limits of what private sector finance can do. Simply because there's been all these consultations. Arthur mentioned all the various regulations, CSRD, uh, SEC Climate Rules still yet to be born, ISSB. The finance sector, asset managers in particular, have had to become very specific going through all these regulations, figuring out exactly what their response was going to be to this. And in, in that process, it's become very apparent what are the limits to the actions that they can take within the current global policy framework. So what's becoming increasingly clear is that finance's role is important in all of this, but it has to be led by a consistent global policy framework that enables transition and decarbonization and also adaptation. So we've seen the start of things like that with these say the Inflation Reduction Act in the United States and other various stimulus activities aimed at decarbonization, but it's not really been globally consistent. We mentioned adaption before. You said there's a key this you mentioned before this was a key word to look out for at COP twenty eight. What do you mean by that? And 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 you know when you say adaption, why do you think this is going to be a key word and what what do should you look out for? And what is the kind of significance of this ter- like the, the the idea of adaption from your perspective? Well, a lot of the focus has been on on mitigation, on keeping the temperature rise as low as possible, well below two, ideally one point five. That that's all well and good, but we're realizing now we're probably somewhere between one and one point two degrees according to the science. We're realizing now that that's not that's not as safe as we probably thought it was before. We say that anything below one point five is safe, but there's still a lot of changes that you're going to need to deal with. Mm. We've seen these droughts, floods, fires, the extreme weather extreme, of this year, yeah, extreme not safe, right? Yeah. Um, and so there's still going to need to be a response to that, even if by some miracle we are successfully hitting 1.5, but it doesn't look like we, we will be, we'll get onto that, I guess. Mm. There's still a lot of capital and a lot of policy and a lot of effort that's going to need to be put into, uh, making operations, populations safe from the changes that we've already baked in as it were. You, you, you touched on something there about, you know, the targets and, um, it looking unlikely that you know 1.5 it will be you know that the that the goal of 1.5 can be stuck to, and I suppose um, there is a fear 
that if you start to deviate from that, when to stop and how much complacency can set in across the board. What I suppose, what's your view on that? If both both want to kind of give, I don't know, your thoughts on, if it's not realistic, shouldn't we just say it? Just say 1.5 isn't going to happen. But then what are the risks? And then what does your role fit into in this when it comes to dealing with companies? Can you, like I say, imagine a scenario where they say 1.5 is not going to happen. Let's just change it. Pattern. How would that realistically work? And how do you I mean, manage it? It's uh, one of the nine planet boundaries. So you cannot, you cannot change that as an objective. It's just, it's, that's the way it is as, as uh, um, uh, backed by science. So um, When Hortense had the, just sorry to cut over you, I remember Hortense mentioning at your, your COP28 debrief late last week, it will be a tragedy to hear that 1.5, the target at 1.5 dies in Dubai. What is the sentiment behind that fear if it can't change them, I suppose? I think the the point is that all of the finance sector, all of the investment sector companies, they, they set ambitious targets that they will miss all the time. The target is to keep people on track for what the actual goal is, which is temperature reduction. And, and having that well below two degree target or the 1.5 degree target that we've had in recent years has managed to get us from a scenario where we were on track for four degrees of temperature rise and it looks like we're on track for somewhere between two and three degrees. Now, between two and three degrees is still a problem. Let's not make any any bones about that. However, that we've still had that progress because of having the ambitious target. If you relax the target at a time when we need more effort than ever to to at least try and hit or at least limit temperature rise to the maximum amount we can, people start to slack off. We miss the less ambitious target and then we're in an even bigger problem uh, and i think that's the that's the key fear that that i think Boutons was um mentioning at the round table the other day i think uh the ecb published their um second climate stress test so you can look at the result and they're they're showing the impact banks are a mirror like they're mirror of the economy right so they're a very good proxy um the amount of um stranded assets that uh, procrastination will be more costly in, in general. So, I mean, there's, def, you know, again, going back to the first point, 1.5, that's the limit, that's the planet boundary limit. You know, you can change the the, the goalpost, but like the reality is, it is what it is, right? Sure. So, uh, and and then it will, it will just be more costly. So, um, there's there's no commercial business incentive to, to wait to transition. Um, of course, there are, it comes with political compromises and, and um, as a as a policy uh, leader, policy leaders need to to bear that into amount how much can be absorbed and taken in by the by society. Um, but the, those those two facts are undeniable. Mm. That's the planet limit, and and the more you wait, the more costly it will be. I'm interested as well. I suppose looking at that, I suppose everyone's wondering, say, what this year is. I don't know, rabbit rabbit out of the hat moment will be. Last year, it seemed to be the loss and damage fund, which the blueprint of which I think has to be signed off. In, in this summit now in the next couple of weeks. Um, the loss and damage fund, I mean, as it's set out now, looking at the blueprint as it is now, is is that enough? And if you were to say, not to make you kind of, not, not to be too much of a crystal ball question, but what kind of um, headline announcement could be made this year? Is there any kind of inkling, any any ideas about what could be the COP28 big reveal or the big pledge by the asset management financial community? It's hard to say what the rabbit out of the hat will be um, this time around. Um, 
I don't think if you'd asked the same question this time last year that we would have expected the loss and damage fund to be the big headline. So it's hard to know. I think from my perspective, a big rabbit out of the hat would be some commitment to existing uh, to existing targets and frameworks. Whether it will be enough, um, I mean, it's hard to say. Everything has to start somewhere and we know that there's trillions and trillions of dollars that we're going to need to pour into uh, adaptation. So every um, element that we get towards doing that will help, but whatever number is announced for the loss and damage fund is probably not going to be seen as, as enough for particularly what developing countries have to do to, to adapt and, and, uh, and uh, transform their economies to, to deal with climate change. But every bit helps. I think that the key thing is that having promised the loss and damage fund at COP27, it'll be good to see some actual funding this year. Because it's, it's yet to kind of take off. The, 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 the blueprint has to be agreed. So it actually hasn't started to work yet. Absolutely. There's, there's, there's a lot of work to do. It's it, Last year's big announcement was a promise to set up a fund, not not an actual fund. So, um, yeah, there's plenty still to be worked out. Okay. Just on, on that front, I'm sorry to go back to no, no. The, the regulation, but uh, last year I was asked, you know, what do I think about what's needed from a regulatory point of view? And it's still very much valid. And it was about this idea that, you know, of course, you know, money is needed, but also regulation is an extremely powerful tool. So the EU has developed their, their taxonomy. You probably have heard of it. It's centered around climate, climate mitigation, climate adaptation. And everybody has to disclose that. So there's a strong incentive to disclose the highest figures and, and, and invest um, um, towards activities that are taxonomy aligned. This tool is completely useless abroad. You can, there's, it's full of EU regulation references. You don't know how to use it abroad. You cannot use estimates. If you do, you have to uh, justify it with the, with the regulators and it's so constraining that you cannot use it abroad. So if climate, you know, if the EU wants to, or regulators want to take the lead, uh, they should also look at their own regulation that is creating, uh, that is protectionist de facto. Uh, if they want to build a bridge and help capital being deployed at global level, whoever needs it most uh, to finance uh, climate uh, adaptation activities, they should look at, they should take a look in the in the, uh, the mirror and try to to fix those issues. Um, I've been uh, we we're part of uh, not myself but some colleagues of the sustainable finance platform with the, with you, but also a high level expert group trying to help um, low what they call low and middle class income countries uh, have a, a framework that's uh, more cohesive and coherent with sustainable investing. You know, the EU could help a lot by by uh, fixing those uh, those issues. It's not just money; it's also regulation. This can be a powerful tool. Okay. Sorry, if, from coming from the regulatory nerd. You are absolutely allowed to talk about regulation. Just kind of moving. It's sort of tied on to the idea of shifting public um, opinion and getting everyone on board. We know that I suppose they're very complex casualties to do with you know, climate change, it's not like stop smoking campaign, you know, like smoking causes lung cancer. There you go. People get it. It's it's a completely different ballgame. Mm-hmm. Um, is, we have, to, I'm, I'm going to ask about the hosts, the fact that it's, you know, an oil rich UAE country. Um, is the UAE considering, you know, they're announcing, you know, like a new gas pipeline, you know, this year, can an oil rich country or an oil rich state such as the UAE really be the one to lead the messaging and 
um, on the kind of the, the very vigorous climate change action that we need now. Either one, either one of you can jump in straight away and answer this one. <laughs> I think there was a lot of talk about that and, and very valid discussion over whether uh, a nation so dependent on fossil fuels can, can lead in, in this. But I think it's important to remember that globally it's an entire system that involves the fossil fuel sector, the finance sector, the corporate sector that all need to work together. And so the idea that the United Arab Emirates should not be part of that conversation is pretty problematic. It's been decided they're taking the lead, they're doing what they can. They have their own idea of what um, what transition should look like. Um, I think it's it's important for the rest of the world to come together and, and find out what they can all agree on to drive towards 1.5 degrees rather than arguing about whether this nation or that nation is best placed to, to deal with it. Because you could, you could perhaps have made the same argument about the UK hosting it with being a global finance center, being a global finance center uh, that is pretty dependent on the fossil fuel sector, on the material sector, on highly climate exposed section, mm. sectors. I agree. I agree that not having them involved is the, the idea of just not having them involved on that base level is is is, is problematic. But I suppose you know, looking at um, if this is not if this is like a, a one in a number of key moments to try and kind of break away from what is essentially like a global addiction to fossil fuel. Um, and then looking, I suppose, you know, like media reports on um, COP28, the kind of the merging of uh, the sway, the sway, the say, the visit, you know, the, the, the kind of the, the, the interaction between um, the UAE's involvement with COP28 looks a little unusual. It's People have pointed to it being a little bit unusual. They've got kind of oversight of things in ways that maybe they shouldn't or, you know, there's kind of a slight conflict of interest. I think at that point, maybe, I suppose you're right, it's 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 probably important to be specific if you're going to voice concern about it, um, as opposed to they have oil, they're the UAE, that's bad. You know, when it comes to the perception, well, the perception of this, this summit is so important. And then, you know, I'm just, is this a concern, you know? It is important. Um, and I'm not aware of the, the details of the specific charges that have been leveled here, but if we are complaining about fossil fuels and lobbyists turning up in the UAE, well, they haven't just turned up for the first time, I think is, is okay. a key point here. Gotcha. Uh, and so there are always those concerns. They're amplified quite rightly by the the location of this year's conference, but you could probably level the same charge at several previous conferences, which isn't why, perhaps why we're not making quite enough progress. But I think it's time to move on for the, from the conversation about where this is being held and focus on what we're going to do. Okay. And on that... You're saying it's, I understand it's proxy voting season. Could you, can you go into what that's telling us about the mood, I suppose, you know, the, 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 the mood in the room from what you can see in this current proxy voting season as regards, um, you know, the, 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 the shift that we need to see. What is the kind of the, 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 the room, the temperature in the room at the minute? Yes. Well, well, it is proxy voting season only for me in that I'm, I'm <laughs> analysing the results of, of what happened earlier in the year. Um, I think what we're seeing is there are um, increasingly specific resolutions being filed, particularly in the United States, um, in terms of what you know high ambition investors want in terms of climate, which is resulting in lower support that mainstream asset managers do not necessarily feel it is their job to be as specific as these proposals mention on uh, climate activity. Does that mean that they are less committed to climate change? I think it's 
it would be oversimplistic to to reach that conclusion. Um, as Arthur mentioned, we've seen a lot of regulation that now deals with the policy framework around setting transition plans and climate targets. And so as those regulations start to kick in, there is less and less need for individual proposals uh, dealing with climate change. And so we've seen uh, that effect start to kick in. Asset managers are more and more reluctant to support um, shareholder proposals on climate that deal with the minutiae of addressing climate change when those are already be, being dealt with by regulation. And we've seen CSRD, the European Sustainability Reporting Standards, ISSB, the, the SEC climate rule, and that eventually comes out, but we've also seen a new um, new regulation in California that's, that's dealing with those. So there's a lot of regulatory activity, mm-hmm. which somewhat reduces the, the need for um, shareholder proposals on climate like we saw in 2021. What we are seeing, though, is there is an increasing focus from asset managers on climate risk governance, ensuring that the right people and the right risk management frameworks are being embedded in companies to to deal with climate change, and a lot more focus on the political influence angle with regard to climate, so climate lobbying, requests for more disclosure from companies around those areas. That's largely in the United States. In Europe um, and other parts of the world, we're seeing um, more and more say on climate votes. I think that probably peaked last year rather than this year. We've seen fewer of them this year. But um, asset managers, investors, asset owners are applying a slightly higher level of scrutiny to uh, companies' transition plans and reporting than they did before as they become more familiar with the territory. So we've seen a slight decrease in the level of support that management teams are getting for for those plans. And I think that's that's a healthy uh, a healthy development if uh, people are becoming a bit more demanding in what they're expecting from companies' disclosures in that area. Perfect. Do you know, and before I let you go, and as I want to say thank you so much for coming in, it's been a very useful task for me. I don't know if this is a fair question, but it's going to be the last question, so let's just, just see how it goes. If you were to be, it's hypothetical, it's hypothetical, but if you were sat in front of the head honchos of the COP28, the most influential people in, in COP28, what is one ask one plea one command i don't know that you would say to them before it starts it can be dream it can be wishes i think it'd be it can be direct you don't have to be polite (laughs) i think it would be to bear in mind that decarbonization that happens now is much 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 more valuable than anything you plan to do in the late 2020s in the 2030s in the 2040s there has been a lot of talk uh, not unjustifiably about the potential for carbon removal solutions and offsets and their role. And that's all fine. There is a, there is definitely a place for that in the conversation. But it slightly detracts from the question, what are we going to do right now? Because avoided carbon now is much more impactful than whatever we could do to remove it in the future. And I think that's what people need to focus on. Good point. Arthur? I, I guess my message would be the longer you wait, the harder it's going to be and, and the harder it's going to be for your consist- constituencies, right? They're elected political leaders, so um, no time to waste. Get going. Yeah, it's the going. message. Absolutely. Well, Lindsay, Arthur, thank you very much. Pleasure. Thank you.